As we continue in worship now, we invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, we're returning to our Gospel of Luke this, uh, on, uh, this uh, Sunday. And Luke chapter 19, verse 45, all the way to chapter 20, verse 8 is what we'll be looking at today. Luke 19, 45 through 20, verse 8. And let us pray in response to the song that we've just sung. Father, thank you, Lord, for... Uh, for the, just simply the, the joy that we have in knowing you. And thank you, Lord, we can uh, know you more through the opening up of your word. And we ask that your spirit would teach us and guide us into your truths so that we might know you and love you more. Help us to live in accordance with your word as a reflection of our love, that you would be glorified in your church, in your people. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke 19, 45, 20 to chapter 20, verse 8. And I'll read the text within the sermon this morning. During these past eight months, uh, churches across America have had um, their religious liberty uh, basically uh, limited um, by government regulations, all for the purpose of public health and safety. And this is kind of a unique, at least for in our lifetimes, it's unique. Uh, and churches all across America, all across even the world, have responded differently to these restrictions. It has raised many questions among church leaders as to who has the authority to regulate what goes on in a church. Is it government or is it church? And some argue for one or the other or a combination of the two or something in between. But ultimately, I believe that and I hope that every church of Jesus Christ recognizes that the final authority the ultimate authority for the regulation of all that goes on in the matters of the church belong to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. For it was after he ascended uh, to heaven, we read of what God did for Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See, our Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church by virtue of his death and resurrection for the body of Christ. And in a world where authority is often questioned or denied or debated, the church of Jesus Christ should know that <clears throat> Jesus has authority over the house of God because of not only what he did for us, but because of who he is. Jesus is the Son of God sent from heaven Above, And therefore, he has authority over the people of God and the house of God. The question for you and me today to ponder is whether we recognize and reflect that Jesus has authority over this house of God, this church. It is one thing to say that Jesus is the head of this church. We can read it all we want. But how is that manifest in the life of this church? How does it show? How does it reflect? Our passage today gives us several things to ponder. To give us context as we look at this passage, Luke 19, 45 to chapter 20, verse 8, we are in that section of Luke that records his final week on earth. On Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to the adulations of praise from the people. And although he is not the political king that Israel and her leaders were seeking, he is not hiding the fact that he is the Messianic King. The conflict that Jesus had with the religious leaders comes to a head in this final week. 
It begins in our passage with the cleansing of the temple and the subsequent response of the religious leaders. It raises the question of Jesus' authority over the house of God. As we study this passage this morning then, we're going to glean three priorities that reflect a recognition of Jesus' authority over the house of God. As we, uh, well, this passage describes how he cleaned, cleansed the temple, how, uh, and then his exchange with the religious uh, leaders is going to teach us three priorities that we need to have in, in our lives and in the life of this church that reflect a recognition of Jesus' authority over his house, over this church. Okay, So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's take a look at them. priority number one. Priority number one is the priority of praying to God. The priority of praying to God. Verse 45, 46, look at there with me in chapter 19. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Luke's record of this event is the shortest of all the gospel accounts. Mark's account is the most detailed, followed by Matthew's. John, on the other hand, interesting, doesn't record this particular cleansing, but he alone records the very first cleansing of the temple that Jesus did in, in John chapter 2, verse 13 to 16. The first had occurred near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and this one now occurs near the end of his ministry in life. But both cleansings reveal Jesus' zeal, Jesus' jealousy for the house of God. When Jesus entered the temple... It was as if the glory, it was not as if, but it was the glory of God was once more in the house of God. In Jerusalem, the temple was the, the center of worship for all of Israel. This building that was to be the place where the people of God would go to, where they would go to meet with God, was now visited by God in the flesh. But the temple and the people in it were not where they should be. Though the temple was full of people because it was the Passover, Israelites from all over had traveled there to offer their sacrifices to the Lord, to celebrate. And among the Passover celebrants, there were people uh, providing a service to all these worshipers. They were selling animals for sacrifice as a matter of convenience. Certainly, the sellers would then make a profit and a portion then would also be given to uh, the temple rulers, the chief priests, as a, to support their work. It was, a, if you will, a win-win situation for all. For the sellers, for the buyers, and for the temple rulers. It was a successful and convenient business on the temple grounds. And though the temple was full of people and full of activity, it was empty of true worship. When Jesus saw all that was going on, he reacted with righteous anger. These people were making a mockery of the house of God. And he began to drive out those who were selling, not just those who were selling, but those who were, those who were carrying things around, those who were exchanging money as well, according to Mark's, uh, Mark's uh, record of this. It, Mark also tells us that Jesus actually overturned tables, overturned through seats, you know. Um, I don't know, how, I don't care how he does it, but to overturn tables and seats is a very violent thing. And it was, Jesus was upset. He was angry. And he had a right to be. 
As Jesus casts them, all these, uh, these sellers out, his words provide the explanation for his anger. Verse 46, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus appeals to Holy Scripture, to what God's word says. And God's house is to be a house of prayer, but on, in contrast, they had made it a place for robbery, for, for, for sinners. Jesus quotes here uh, in, in, this, uh, in this verse two Old Testament passages, one from Isaiah 56, verse 7, the other from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. See, God's house is supposed to be a place of prayer. It's a prayer, it's a place where we're to be joyful in as we pray to God. It's a place where you, as you to pray to God as you offer up your sacrifices, as you offer up your offerings. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, in the court of the Gentiles, by the way, where they were selling all their goods. It was a place of prayer where people could come to express their trust and dependence in God. Even the sacrifices that the people offered were designed to remind them that they depended upon God for the forgiveness of their sins. But sadly, as is often as the case with, with religion, man elevates the outward rituals of our faith over the inward reality. The inward reality was that Israel was to pray, was to pray in dependence and worship of God. They're to talk to God. They're to commune with God. That's the inward reality of worship. Worship is telling God how much he's worth, as we like to say. But the outward rituals were the sacrificial system that were meant to teach them and evoke in them that prayerful dependence. But the businesses of the temple reflected that for Israel, their focus had become all about the sacrificial system. They'd completely forgotten about Prayer, trust, faith. Instead of depending upon God, they were depending upon their works, on their sacrifices to save. You see, for us today, when we draw near to worship God, the inward reality is that God wants us to communicate our dependence upon Him and praise of Him. First to Him, as we praise Him, but secondly, to one another as well. We express that, that our depends upon God to one another. We encourage one another as we worship. The outward rituals of our faith are singing, giving, standing, listening, speaking to others, and once a month observing communion here at As the Bible. And you know that these are outward rituals. You can tell that they are rituals because you can do them and not actually communicate your dependence and praise to God. You can do them with your, in a sense, your brain off, where you're not even thinking about God. You can go through the motions of these things and not talk to God and tell him how much he's worth. See, in worship, we are to declare the unique worth of our God and Savior and give honor and respect to him, right? That's, that's what we're supposed to do in worship. So in our worship services, then, every element is designed to express or, or evoke our prayers to God. Why are you here? Are you here because you like to sing? Are you here because you like to hear a good sermon? Are you here because you like to get some fellowship with other Christians? These are good things. 
but they're not the main thing. May each element express or evoke in you and me prayer to God because God's house is to be a house of prayer. Let's make praying to God our priority because Jesus wants his house to be a house of prayer. And when it wasn't, he cleaned house. Priority number one is the priority of praying to God. Second priority that we can glean from this text that reflects the recognition of Jesus' authority over the house of God is the priority of teaching the word of God. The priority of teaching the word of God. Verse 47 and verse 48. Look at there with me. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Over the next few days in this final week, that Monday and uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus was teaching every day in the temple. Having cleansed the, table, the, the temple from its corruption, now the Lord was fulfilling its purpose. The purpose of the temple to be a beacon of truth to all peoples. In Isaiah chapter 2 is a prophecy of the future kingdom of the Messiah, the, the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. And I want to read for you Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 3. And there explains you know, the ultimate fulfillment of the temple and the temple mount. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, in teaching in the temple, Jesus was showing the purpose of the temple mount where God's house dwelt, was built. It was a place where God's ways could be taught, where anybody in any, of any place could go and say, let's go there, let's go learn God's ways. And having learned God's ways, they would then be encouraged to walk in God's ways. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus taught about the gospel of the kingdom of God, how one might enter in, as a citizen of his kingdom through faith in the king. These were God's ways. And that likely continued here in the temple. Jesus, as you know, his teaching was never like the scribes and the Pharisees who often quoted other people for their authority. But he taught as one with unique authority. As he explained the scriptures. He didn't have to quote anyone else because he knew the scriptures. He wrote the scriptures. They came from him and to him they pointed as part of Jesus' teaching, he likely also taught about the nature of true worship in, in explaining to others about why he cleansed the temple. But in the remainder of Luke's account, we can actually, in the weeks ahead, we're going to learn about how Jesus taught about several things about himself, about the upcoming death of Christ, the resurrection that exists in Christ, the deity of Christ, and as well as the return of Christ. And though he taught clearly and with authority in the temple daily, people responded differently. On one hand, the religious leaders, as we read in, 
as we read, rejected him. Christ was here teaching in the temple how they could enter the kingdom of God. And these blind leaders do not even heed his words, but instead were trying to destroy him. That is, they were trying to kill him. But they were not able to succeed because the people, on the other hand, were captivated by his words. They were hanging on to every word that Jesus spoke. The question whether they all believed in is another matter. Because we know that those same crowds later on in the week are going to cry out, crucify him. But at this point, the people are eager to hear the truths of God from his lips. What is important to note, though, and what's, what I want to point out is that Jesus is, is at this point days away from his inevitable crucifixion and death. And yet his priority remains teaching the truths of God. If teaching the word of God in, in his temple was Jesus' priority, then should not the teaching the word of God in his church be our priority? Absolutely. And we see this reflected in the rest of Scripture. It's reflected in Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. It's reflected in the devotion of the early church in Acts 2.42. It's reflected in Paul's epistles in many places, but places such as 1 Timothy 3.15 and 2 Timothy 4.2. And I know when I preach this point that the priority of, of, of teaching the Word of God, I'm preaching to the choir here at SF Bible. That's what we like to do. But we must remember always, because sometimes we get used to it. Sometimes when we have so much teaching, we can take it for granted. It's usually the second or the third generation that takes all this for granted and starts saying, you know, it's nice to have all that teaching, but let's, let's go do something with it. And they're right. And sometimes, though, it's that third generation that then says, you know, hey, this is great that we do things, but why do we even need that teaching? That's not so important. But you will never have right doing until you have right teaching, right doctrine. Without Christ's words, without the teaching of Christ's words, one would not know how to be saved from sin. One would not know how we ought to live and walk by faith. We will not know of our hope for, a future, for our future. We will not know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church of God. His words give us our marching orders in this life. You know, this life is not vanity of vanities when you know Jesus Christ. When we teach the words of God, which are the words of Christ, we reveal basically this church's recognition that Jesus has authority over this church. It's not Henry's words or Ray's words or Roger's words. It's Christ's words that we want to teach because it is his words that we want to follow. And this leads us right into the third point, that, a third, that if we recognize Jesus' authority over the house of God, then we are also going to pursue the priority of obeying the Son of God, the priority of obeying the Son of God. In chapter 20, verse 1 to 8, this, these verses of the religious leaders gather to question Jesus' authority to do as to why he's doing what he's doing, included cleansing the temple as well as teaching the temple. And it begins with the challenge to his authority in verses 1 and 2. Look at chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us, by what authority are you, 
by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Now, this event likely took place on Tuesday. Cleansing took place on Monday. The next day is probably Tuesday of Passion Week. And as Jesus was teaching the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders confronted him. Now, these three groups are mentioned very specifically because these three groups made up the religious leaders of Israel. They made up the Sanhedrin, the highest spiritual authority in all of Israel. Under Roman rule, they had complete authority in all matters of Jewish worship. And to, so therefore they had authority, but Jesus in his conduct was communicating a different authority. And two questions are asked of Jesus, both essentially asking the same thing, slightly different emphasis. But the first question is a challenge to the nature of his authority. What kind of authority do you have, Jesus? What are your credentials? You're not a priest. You're not a chief priest, for sure, even. You're not a scribe. You're not an elder. Jesus was not a recognized member of the religious establishment. And the second question is a challenge to the source of his authority. Where do you get your authority? Who do you represent? Who sent you? In the minds of the Sanhedrin, Jesus was an uneducated, unqualified, and unrecognized spiritual leader. Jesus replies to this challenge in verse 3 to 4. And in verse 3 to 4, we find the key to his authority, the key to his authority. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Jesus uses a question to answer the questions of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't use it to evade their question, but rather as a key to unlock the answer to their question. If they would answer this question, they would have the answer to their own questions. And Jesus asks them about their view of the source of authority of John the Baptist's ministry. Was John's ministry from heaven or from men? The phrase from heaven was just a reverential way of saying from God. Why does Jesus ask this particular question? Because he knows that when they answer one, they'll answer, they have the answer to the other. If John's baptism was from God, then Jesus' authority was from God. And if John's baptism was from men, then Jesus' authority was from men. Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't offer any other alternatives. There are no grades of authority when it comes to spiritual matters. It is either of God and authoritative for all, or it is of men and authoritative for none. Jesus' question is no surprise when we understand, in the, according to the scriptures, that John's mission was to point people to the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist is recorded as saying of Jesus, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That John the Baptist testifies of Jesus that he is the Son of God. His authority comes from God. Sadly, the Sanhedrin deny the truth in verse 5 to 8, the denial of his authority. They reason among themselves, they're thinking about his question, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from, from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> their reasoning and answer reveal a concern for their own well-being. 
rather than the truth. They face a dilemma. They didn't want to say John's authority was from heaven because John pointed to Jesus and then they should have believed John. They also didn't want to say John's authority was from men because they were afraid of being stoned to death by the people because everyone considered John to be, have been a real prophet. So they answered with a lie that they did not know. These religious leaders who once were so confident that they knew exactly where Jesus' power came from. He came from the devil. The, the son, he's, he does it by the power of Beelzebul, they said. All of a sudden are now agnostics. Oh, we don't know where John the Baptist's authority came from. So Jesus answers and says, Neither will I because of their, their willful denial of the truth. He says, nor, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The Sanhedrin had lied to protect themselves. It is further evidence of their hypocrisy as spiritual leaders. It revealed that their problem was not one of ignorance. It was a, prob it was a problem of unwillingness, of rebellion, because they were unwilling to give an answer. Jesus would not give them an answer either. Even, had, even if Jesus had told them directly that his authority was from heaven, they would have rejected it and denied it. They were not seeking the truth. Remember, they were seeking to destroy him, to accuse him. And that's exactly what happened during Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 to 64. When asked directly whether he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus answered, I am. And to that answer, they fell down and worshipped him. No, they didn't. They called him a blasphemer, deserving of death, because they were unwilling to hear the truth. They denied his authority and crucified the Christ. Our view of Jesus' authority determines whether we will obey him or deny him. What is your view of his authority? Is it from heaven or is it from men? Is it divine authority or is his authority human authority? If it is human authority, then Jesus can be fallible. And you may choose to disobey him, much like how many people today are disobeying the human authorities given over them during this pandemic. But if his authority is divine authority, if he is the messianic son of God, then he is infallible. He can make speak no error. And whatever he speaks is true and we may choose to disobey it, yes, but we do so at our own peril. Rather, Jesus, because he is the Son of God and his authority is from God, from heaven, he deserves to be obeyed. And not just his instructions, the instructions that we like, but all his instructions, including the instructions to submit to all government authorities, even unrighteous ones. But furthermore, recognizing Jesus' authority means we will obey his word over and above the words of men.
We must always strive to submit to authorities whenever possible. But when that authority causes us to disobey him, to disobey Jesus, to disobey God, then we must humbly, in dependence upon the Lord, obey him rather than men. May we do so as a reflection of our recognition that Jesus is the head of this church. Well, in conclusion, to anyone out there who has eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus' authority was from God. That's what scriptures make clear. Throughout his life and ministry, all witnessed to this truth. The angel Gabriel witnessed to it. Elizabeth and Mary witnessed to it. Zacharias witnessed to it. The angels and shepherds witnessed to it. Simeon and Anna witnessed to it. John the Baptist and the Father himself witnessed to it that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messianic Son of David. And as the Messianic Son of God sent from heaven, Jesus has authority over everything, including his church and especially his people. If you're not yet a Christian, I invite you to respond to him as the one who has all authority. You know, you know what authority is like. We live in a world where there are authority. Parents, teachers, bosses, political leaders, uh, government leaders, police officers and, and such. But when you recognize they have authority, what do you do towards them? You, how do you respond to them? And they're these infallible human authority. You obey them. You generally submit to them. Do you know everything about them? No. Have you studied everything that there is about them? No. But yet you obey them and submit to them because you know that they're your authority. Today's passage makes clear that Jesus has authority from heaven. And he came to live and die for your sins. He rose on the third day from the dead. And he has therefore power to save everyone and anyone, whoever believes in him. Won't you therefore submit to his authority by obeying him as he taught in the, throughout the gospel to repent of sin and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel that is, that is through faith in him alone. Put your faith in Jesus Christ who died in your place for your sins and receive salvation and the hope of eternal life in him. And so I invite you to do that if you have not yet already placed your faith in Jesus because Jesus has authority from heaven. There's two more questions I want to leave with you, you, uh, you to think about and ponder. Question number one, for our, basically for our worshipers here and worshipers gathered together with us today. As you participate in worship, our worship services, are you consciously praying to God throughout the service? There are so many different elements but are you thinking about God? Are you thinking your thoughts? Are you aiming your thoughts towards God as you worship? Are you communicating and responding? Even as we're listening to the word, are you talking to him? You say, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. I'll help me to submit to you. Help me to obey you. It's hard because I'm a rebellious man. I want to follow your ways. Help me because I'm, I'm a fearful man. I want to follow your ways. Talk to him. Communicate to him. Let him know, Lord, I love you. I want to obey your word. Help me to do so. In every element, are you praying to him? Because God's house is to be a house of prayer to God. 
Secondly, how is the authority of Jesus Christ manifest in your personal life? In how you live? Reflection of recognition of Jesus' authority is that we obey the Son of God and obey the scriptures that he, uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that we, as we come to understand it. Is there any of your life that you need to submit more to the Lord Jesus Christ? Consider that, ponder that. And may your life reflect Jesus' authority over you. Because he is the Lord and he is the king. And therefore, we ought to follow his ways. One day, all the world is going to flock to the temple. All the world is going to say, let us go and let us learn his ways that we might walk in them. Brothers and sisters, before we even wait for that time, let us come to the house of the Lord. Let us draw near together and let us learn his ways that we might together walk in them because Jesus is our king. Let's pray.